0: dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple welcome back to the lincoln project i'm your host reed galen today i'm joined by lincoln project co-founder and co-host of lptv's the breakdown rick wilson rick good to have you here hey reed how are you and making his 2021 podcast debut is our new executive director here at The Link Project, Fred Wellman. Fred, glad to have you with us today. Yeah, great to be here, guys. Good to see you and great to talk to you. So today we're gonna talk a little bit about the continuing attack on voting rights, most recently in the states of Georgia and Iowa, and then we're gonna talk about the US Chamber of Commerce backtracking from their commitment not to fund members of what we call the Sedition Caucus. We'll get to that a little bit, but first, Fred, we wanna get to know a little bit about you. So you have come in, during stormy seas and rising tides, and you ran our veterans coalition last year to great effect. But tell us a little about you. I know that you attended West Point, you were in the military. Tell us a little bit about your career and how you found your way to us.
1: Ah, yes, a sordid tale. As you mentioned, I graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point way back in 1987. I was commissioned as an aviator, Uh, went off to flight school and ended up flying scout helicopters for a good chunk of my career. Actually got a little bit of politics and I mean, took a break, joined the Reserves back in 1999 in Georgia, of all places, <laughs> ran for mayor of Petrie City, Georgia. And in the middle of the mayor's race, they threw a war when 9-11 hit. And so I dropped out of the race and was mobilizing the Reserves back in the Army, thus ending my political career. Uh, and serving another eight years in the Army. And during that, I changed over to public affairs, ended up being the spokesman for General David Petraeus and Marty Dempsey, which was a really unique experience. Both of them went on to great acclaim. Uh, retired about 11 years ago and then went into the business world. Started my own uh, public relations firm that focused on veterans and military family issues called Scout Comms. Led that for about a decade. And I wrapped that up, you know, the pandemic and everything else. And I was looking for a new gig. And I reached out to this guy He used to be a mentor of mine. I'd met him in 2005 in Iraq named Steve Schmidt when he was working for the vice president. And I said, hey, Steve, I'm looking for some advice. What should you do next? And, you know, you guys know Steve. It was you're going to work for us. We've heard of him. <laughs> we're going to do, uh, you're going to do veterans stuff. I'm like, okay, what, what does that look like? I don't know. You'll figure it out. I'm like, okay. So there you have it. So I joined the Lincoln Project in August as the Senior Advisor of
0: Veterans Affairs. So in your first go around in the Army, you were a helicopter pilot. Correct. And you served in the first Gulf War? Yeah. I was a scout helicopter pilot in the 24th Infantry Division. You
1: guys, The big left hook guys on Desert Storm. So, I was actually with the Apache battalion. I was the lead scout for one of the Apache companies. So, we actually fought the last battle of the war, what they call the Cosway Battle, where we caught the Hammurabi Division, of the Iraqi Republican Guard. So, if you turn the military channel on, you'll see our videos. So, I did that for a good chunk of my career and then um, flew scouts and United you know, Storm, flew them in Hawaii, ended up flying Blackhawks in the 101st Airborne Division for the invasion of Iraq second time. I invaded Iraq twice.
0: So, I ended up doing four combat tours, all of them in Iraq. So, how many of the second Gulf War, how many combat tours were you there? Is that two? Three there. So the first one was with the 101st Airborne Division,
1: fantastic unit, 6th of the 101st Aviation. I was the I was a Blackhawk Battalion. Interestingly enough, that's how I ended up with you guys. We got up to northern Iraq and we arrived with our Blackhawk helicopters. And next thing you know, some guy showed up at our gate, local Iraqis asking for help. And, you know, being me, I was like, well, let's go meet the neighbors. I'm from Missouri. We should know the neighbors. And one thing led to another. I ended up building schools and clinics and feeding people and delivering water. And that got me on TV. And uh, one day I made Kira Phillips cry during an interview. <laughs> you weren't mean to her, were you? No, no, I told her this heartbreaking story about the beautiful Iraqi children. And uh, Kira's just a remarkable American. And she got choked up about it. And Dan thinks General Petraeus called me and goes, You know what? That was great. You made me cry. You should be public affairs officer. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> and that's uh, a usable job skill, you know? And uh, I mean, flying helicopters is great, but, you know, it's not a usable job skill.
0: I would say the only career you could find probably anywhere, but certainly in the military, probably more hazardous than flying Black Hawk helicopters would be a public affairs officer for a general.
1: That's a very accurate for any general. Yeah. And that's all I had, Petraeus. Yeah. For <laughs> Petraeus especially. It was great. So I switched over to public affairs. And then the next you know, I ended up back in Iraq with him. And uh, when we were building the Iraq Security Forces, so I was in Baghdad with him. And then he left, you know, Mr. Airborne guy. And then the guy to go over him was Marty Dempsey. You know, General Dempsey, who ended up being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, he's an old tanker. So yeah, I really learned on the fly, right in Baghdad for the most part. And going to grad school and then doing one more tour in two thousand eight before retiring out
0: of the army. And when you went back for your last tour, was that also as a public affairs officer?
1: Yeah, actually the same unit. Yeah, a multinational security transition command. We were the guys building the Iraqi security forces from scratch. So you're a unique mission too, because I not only was doing spokesman stuff, but I also was a trainer and advisor to the Iraqi Minister of Defense. It was really kind of a cool gig, to tell you the truth.
0: So you joined the Lincoln Project last year. Now you have come in As we're finding our new direction here. And I think your past experience is probably well suited to what you're dealing with now. So as you look around here, you know, you've been on the job a little bit more than a month, you know, and given all the stuff that we're going through, what excites you most about what we've got coming on? And what have you learned so far about the organization, the people? What can you tell us so far?
1: Well, you know, if you remember our conversation when I actually volunteered for the job, right, it was, you know, we're campaigners. You know, we've run campaigns. We were a campaign and everyone was a campaigner. What right. I also brought to the table and we didn't mention was I 10 years of business. I was a small businessman for 10 years. I built a company from scratch in my basement. And so I know something a little bit about building an organization. So that job I just mentioned in Iraq, we built the Iraqi security forces while engaging in combat. So I've got, some, you know, I've got some experience of building an organization in flight while being shot at. And, and that ended up being truly a job skill set that works really well for this job. But I love where we're going. And we've made that unique transition from being a campaign to being essentially a business. And it does relate to our current situation. It means transitioning these wonderful people we've had working for us, giving them a full-time job, well taken care of, and building a long-term organization that's built for the future. You know, we'll build a tight group that's our permanent staff, and then we'll scale up when we have to for campaigns, and then we'll scale back down to back that tight, smart group, kind of like the Army, right? Regular Army goes to the Reserve. That's how I ended up in Iraq. I was a Reserve officer, and 9-11 hit, and they mobilized me the next day. So I'm really excited about what we're doing. We have defined ourselves as a pro-democracy organization. We were fighting for the right things. And then January 6th changed everything. We were kind of relaxing and trying to figure out the next things, and then there was this next direction. And I had to sit there with my son in the room while we watched this thing unfold on TV as, as these monsters attacked our capital, And it makes us realize that democracy could be in peril, that democracy was only an election away. I think what we discovered, shockingly to many people in our country, was democracy is much more perilous than that here in our country, that there are truly people who are willing to attack our government, swearing they're doing the right thing. So for me, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, you're taking on a a tough mission. As you know, my first day in the job was when a lot of this challenges broke for us. And we stuck with it because the mission matters. The people matter. This is a talented crew of young men and women who've stepped up to the plate and have gone through some tough stuff and are sticking with us to make a difference in the country we got more supporters. Every day I'm buoyed by our supporters. You know, I get online and I have people talking to me, You know, keep going, you matter, the work matters. And I'm just excited. I go on our meetings, I look at those faces and, and it motivates me to keep working.
0: Well, before we move on to the straight politics of the day, what's something you can tell the listeners about you that we wouldn't know based on, you know, being a West Point grad or helicopter pilot? What's something, you know, not too personal, but something interesting that we can let our folks know about?
1: I'm probably the oldest fan of a band called Odessa, electronic group that my 22-year-old son introduced me to. We, we go to concerts and I'm
0: probably the only freaking grandfather there.
2: Oh my God, we're fellow EDM dads. Yeah, I'm an EDM <laughs> guy. Well,
0: I am not an EDM dad. I'm more of a 70s Fleetwood Mac dad, oh, probably. Okay. Where well, I
1: <laughs> slot in. And
0: I'm the grandfather. Okay,
1: now I see
2: I'm the oldest group. That's my weird thing. We go to concerts and I'm the oldest guy there, but it's all good. I just want to say, I had a chance to work with Fred a lot last year on a couple of spots that we jointly produced with Chelsea Sullenberger and some other things and some vet stuff and some other spots. And I just want to say, I love meeting Fred and, the, and us becoming friends in the last year. It's been a really tremendous experience for me. And I am so glad he's on board with the Lincoln Project because we have had a lot of people from a lot of different directions try to come and kick our ass in the last few weeks. And wouldn't be telling you the truth if I didn't say there were some days that have been harder than others. But Fred has been a real leader in the organization and somebody who the younger staff have been able to go to and get guidance and direction and some command authority here. Because, you know, as Reed and Stuart and I will all admit, we are not managers of a lot of these things. We like to cause trouble. And Fred, you're a tremendous guy, and I'm so honored you're with us and so grateful for the work you're doing to put the team on the right course and to get us in the uh In the right spot, and who who would have known we were sitting in my condo yelling at people on the phone about spots and production last fall that we'd end up here? So welcome to the party, pal.
0: (laughs) Great to be here. So now, Fred, let's put you through your paces. Ah, here we go. So the attack on voting rights is not only continuing but is accelerating. So obviously, we've talked several times on the program here about the efforts of the Georgia legislature to roll back a whole bunch of voting rights, whether or not it's. How long early voting lasts, getting rid of absentee balloting, which they've had since 2005, which was supported by Republicans back then, and generally just trying to shrink the franchise. And this week, too, the state of Iowa, the governor there also signed a bill into law that would reduce the number of early voting days you know, left to people. And so just to take a quick aside, last week on March 4th, the QAnon people expected that Donald Trump was going to be inaugurated as, I think, the 19th president. The United States Senate stayed in session. The United States House did not. They decided that discretion was the better part of valor, and they chose not to be in session that day on account of potential security concerns. And one of the people I was talking to said, you know, if the People's House adjourns because of threats of violence, do we still live in a free country? If we know that we have legislatures across the country, you know, something like 253 bills being passed that are intentionally trying to shrink the franchise. Is that a free country? And so, Rick, let me go to you. I mean, it now seems that we've had a radical shift that we're far beyond policy, or actually maybe far away from policy is a better way to put it, now just truly into, at least for one party, just power, and
2: that's it. There is now a real problem here. And there used to be a phrase, Lanny Griffith said this to me one time, you want to win so big, it don't matter if the cheat. Well, now we're at the point where the Republicans are realizing in some states, not all, but in some. And they're trying to do this in many states, that the simplest way to resolve a lot of their problems with their demographics, their message, the negative space that they find themselves in a lot of ways, is to cheat. It is to say, we're going to cut down on voting rights. We're going to cut down on access to the polls. We're going to cut down on the things that this country had ensconced as positive and desirable characteristics of a functioning and thriving democracy. And this republic was born imperfectly and we changed over time in a slow, painful way, and the suffragette movement that expanded voting rights at the turn of the last century, and the civil rights movement that expanded voting rights from the 60s forward, those things would have been considered by previous iterations of every political party as unmitigated good actions. And now the Republican Party is working off of a centralized playbook in state after state to eliminate those rights. You know, Republicans hate being accused of racism. They hate it. And when I was a Republican, I used to hate that, like, reflexive, like, y'all are racist. Well, right now, these voting rights questions that they're attempting to pass in these states, they are overtly racist. They are meant to prevent black voters from seeking representation at the polls in most of these places. They shouldn't even bother to lie about it anymore. These people are trying to eliminate the right to vote, particularly for minority citizens in this country. I think it is a horrifying spectacle, but it is a spectacle we are now going to face up to. So, Fred, with your experience, especially in a place like Iraq
0: that was, when you were there, at best, a fledgling republic, if that, as someone who was probably around as they were trying to find their admittedly brand new democratic traditions or even foundations, what does it say to you to come home after all those tours and all that time in service and see what's going on here? Oh, that's
1: horrifying. I mean, I I can't tell you how this incendiary rage that I felt on January 6th, watching that unfold in my nation. I remember early in 2003, I mentioned earlier I did civil affairs. So I ended up taking care of visiting about 20, 30 villages. And I worked with this doctor there who's since been murdered, Dr. Muhammad. And we used to go visit a village and we'd sit in their room and they'd slaughter sheep and we'd eat food. And it was a unique experience. But it was interesting talking to people in a country coming free. And and I remember talking to Dr. Maham one day. I said, he goes, the thing about you in America is we have a fundamental difference in opinion on what freedom means. And I said, I'm not sure what you mean, Dr. Muhammad. He goes, to you as an American, freedom means you can travel around your country without care. You can do what you want. You can start a business. You can live your life. I said, yes. He goes, for us here in Iraq, after 30 years of dictatorship, freedom means you took my sheep. Boom, boom, I kill you. I'm free to kill you. We have a fundamental difference of what freedom means and what he meant is the resolution to violence that violence is one of the things in the political spectrum as a solution to a problem in iraq in 2003 It had been for 35 years right i remember asking dr muhammad i said i understand how people don't see they're driving on the highway they see a guy planting a bomb how do they not say something how do they not see it and he says let me explain something to you major woman he said for 35 years we survived by not seeing things you didn't see the black cars pull up next door and take the entire family. That's how you survived. And the idea that my home country, that the beacon of freedom around the world, has devolved to a point where a crowd can, under the guidance of the President of the United States, can march down the street and storm our own capital is horrifying. I think even more horrifying is that one of the major political parties has now spent the last month spinning that, that it didn't actually happen, or or that it wasn't what it was, that it wasn't an insurrection, that it wasn't a violent attempted overthrow of our government led by elected officials. So for me, it's been especially hard. And I see that this visceral rage in my fellow veterans that I haven't seen in ages. You know, there's this true outrage at the idea that our nation that we fought so hard to defend, that we went overseas and wore a flag proudly on our shoulders as a beacon of hope, has devolved to a point where violence is now a part of the political spectrum. I mean, that's the thing. If you think about where we are, guys, we are at a time that because of Donald Trump, we have to worry about political violence in the United States of America in 2021. That's terrifying.
0: A friend of mine who's Egyptian was in Tahrir Square years ago. That was his biggest concern after he saw the Capitol was, he said, we feel so bad for you. We're worried for you because once violence becomes part of the lexicon, it's very difficult to get it back out again. I think, Fred, to your point, because now everything becomes predicated in fear. Um, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to say anything because of my personal safety, because of my professional safety, because of my financial background, whatever it might be. But let me throw a quick curveball because I want to take this from legislative and even legal in places like Iowa and Georgia to purely political. This week, Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri announced that he's retiring, that he will not be running again. He's been in office for many, many years. And I got an email from a reporter asking me what I thought about it. And what I said to him was, I think that this is going to be the most concentrated Trumpist political primary that we're likely to see. And Rick, what I said to this reporter is that you're likely to see a bunch of candidates who are actively jockeying for the support of Donald Trump and Josh Hawley, not based on service or democracy or any sort of ideology, but simply if I say enough good things about Donald Trump and the election being stolen or Josh Hawley and he did the right thing, the patriotic thing on January 6th, maybe that'll get me over the line with primary voters. And then that person's got, at least early on, an even money bet of being a United States senator. And so what does that mean for the broader thing? Because, you know, Schmidt previously talked about that the party will get crazier and crazier and crazier as it sort of boils itself down. But that's the case. But that does not mean they can't win some elections in the process.
2: Sure, This is a conceit that our friends on the left, and I've written about this a lot, and I mean this with love. They need to get over this idea that the country has a uniform distribution of wokeness across the nation. Because the most progressive Democrat in Missouri is about .001 AOCs. They are not the same people in Boston, Massachusetts, and in New York City, and Seattle, and Los Angeles, as they are in St. Louis, Missouri. This idea that there's a ideological homogeneity around the country, and that everyone is as far to the left as they are, is why Guys like us were able to win elections for Republicans for a very long time. And one of the reasons that the attack on the Lincoln project has been so vicious from our enemies on the right in the Trump world is very simple. They don't want an effective fighting organization out there in 2022 and 24. They want us off the battlefield. They want us taken out of the process. And if you want Mitch McConnell as majority leader, you want Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and you want Joe Biden impeached in the first day of January 2023, then by all means, pretend that Republicans can't win and pretend that you don't need people who know how to fight them.
0: I want to shift gears to our last segment here, and this has to do with the United States Chamber of Commerce. And the chamber has a big, magnificent building across the street from Lafayette Park, counts among the biggest corporations in the country as its big members you know, spends a lot of money on politics year in and year out, it has traditionally been an organization that, you know, supported more Republicans than Democrats. It usually found a couple of Democrats to support. But, you know, it definitely lined up with the sort of low tax, low regulation sort of ethos with Trump, you know, it became much more difficult for them. But they were an organization who, in the wake of January 6th, said that they would not be giving contributions to any members of Congress who had voted to subvert the election until late last week. And in a classic D.C. move, on a Friday afternoon, their political director put out a memo that said something along the following. There is a meaningful difference between a member of Congress who voted no on the question of certifying the votes of certain states and those who engaged and continue to engage in repeated actions that undermine the legitimacy of our elections and institutions. So, Rick, there isn't a difference. This was the vote. This was a choice that these members made to determine whether or not they were going to allow the constitutional process to continue, or they wanted to see Donald Trump reinstalled
2: in office illegitimately and illegally. Rick, how could they do this to us? You know, Washington, D.C. is a transactional town filled with transactional people who will pull any lever, push any button, take any action to achieve what are essentially now almost exclusively corporate ends. They don't really care about the issues. They care about the raw success metric. But I will say this. This is something I think corporate America has come to understand. The fundamental question of that particular vote wasn't about Donald Trump, you know, whether he won or lost fairly. He lost. The fundamental question of that vote was an attempt to disqualify and eliminate the votes of tens of millions of African-Americans. That's the fundamental question right there. If you're a corporate CEO or marketing person or political person or legislative affairs person, that's the only real question. Did your guy that you're going to give money to vote to cast out the ballots to eliminate the votes of tens of millions of African-Americans to support Donald Trump? And for 147 of them, that was their position. That's the key vote. I don't care if you voted to impeach him or not. The key vote on that moment, at that point was also about, do we live in a democracy? Is this republic a real thing where we have elections and a peaceful transition of power? And we don't have that anymore. Donald Trump and his supporters have seen to that. And the chamber is saying, "Eh, that's all forgiven. No big deal. No problem, guys. Just moving on. And I don't think that we should be surprised by it. I don't think that we should be shocked by it. I think it is a part of of a broken system in Washington, and I know people always say broken Washington. I think it's a part of a system in Washington, D.C. that is fundamentally disconnected, not only from our past, but from our present and our future. It's disconnected from the past because they believe now in nothing except raw victory. There's no ideological predicate other than winning. The second part of that that I find so troubling is that in our present, they are seeking to ignore the will of the American people, and roll back something where the American people quite clearly stated their position on. And for the future, it is a question of, does any election matter now? Does any election now make a difference? Does any election now have a real impact if you just yell loud enough and have enough people storm the building? And if that's the case, then we need to really reconsider how we define ourselves as a country.
0: Fred, so many of these same companies that support the chamber, fund the chamber, run the chamber, you know are the same as companies like Coca-Cola in Georgia, right, where they have refused to take a stand on the on what's going on down there what we talked about at the beginning. So do they believe that no one cares, that their customers don't care, that it doesn't matter? Especially these are so many of the same companies that, you know, made bold statements on equality, equity, racial justice in the wake of George Floyd are now silent or actually taking regressive action in the wake of something that has just as much political impact on potentially people of color as anything else might have. So do they realize that like the foundations of their businesses are predicated on like the rule of law and a free and open economy? Or is it just we're so far gone from those sort of things that it doesn't matter anymore?
1: I've had corporate clients doing like veterans work and have no idea what their government affairs guys are doing. I mean, honestly, I've had corporate clients like, you know, you're this happened. Your government affairs go. Oh, really? We never hear. Even within their companies, they have no idea what their government fair guys are investing into or their or their foundations are putting money in. It's shocking, and I think that's part of it. Is they've operated in a vacuum. that is the business interest first? Shareholder value is everything, and if shareholder value means getting that law turned back in Georgia that allows them to keep their store open in their hour, some ridiculous stupid thing, or ship parts in from X country, that's more important than the right thing for their country. It's almost like this belief that. Corporate interest, financials, and you know, shareholder value and, and stock price is all the more important than any kind of moral compass or what's good or not good for the actual country. And I believe there's a reckoning coming, and we can be a part of that. And I think our followers are a part of that. We have to call them out say, look, we have these partners like Judd Legum and others who are saying, this company gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to this politician. who doesn't give a damn about your voting rights. And so that disconnect, they've gotten away with it by keeping it in the dark and doing it very, very quietly. I think for organizations like us, I think it's going to be a big part of our future, which I'm excited about. Like I said, I lived in Georgia. I lived this life and saw these rules. This kind of anti-American, anti-democratic maneuvers has been done in the dark. Those old smoking back rooms, right? I mean, where the term lobbyists come from? Lobbyists came from singing the lobby at the hotel, right? Waiting for them to come down to to head to Congress. So I do think that there's going to be a realization, I think, in this cycle that these companies have to realize that it's 2021 and there are no dark hidden rooms anymore. And those little tiny people you've never heard of who have a big Twitter following can expose your lies for what they are and present them to those who care about you, both your customers and your employees, right? I mean, so there is a time coming. So how that's presented and it made them to feel comfortable, I think organizations like ours had the ability to shine a very bright light on what were dark back rooms. The chamber was positive. They could put that memo out quietly. And it would slide out to their members and a couple of their corporations would go, yeah, you're right. We, we can start giving back to all these, you know, Tom Cotton, you know, hey, look, I'm from Walmart, you know, I got to give to Tom Cotton, it's Arkansas, you know, well, guess what? No. An organization like ours and some of our allies and our partners or just, in, you know, we just happen to be attacking the same people are going to have to shine a very bright light in these dark rooms to make sure they don't get
0: away with it anymore. So Rick, just to close this out, don't you think there's a part of this too that Kevin McCarthy calls up the president of the chamber and says, look, you got to open the spigot again. And I'm going to try and do some things for you guys on the business stuff you need. But if I can't count on your support, it's just going to be that much harder for us. And I remember all those things we told, like, you know, money doesn't buy votes, it buys access, but it really doesn't. You know, even the president of Microsoft in January said, I have to give this money. So my phone call gets returned. He's the president of Microsoft.
2: Really? And that read that idea that the legislative officials are going to call and bluntly strong arm the chamber and other groups is true they will do that, and there's a culture in Washington that has come to believe that that's perfectly okay it's the nod and the wink it's like, okay, yeah yeah the money's coming, and you know we got to take care of these guys or or what right or what that's the answer they never process it it's like. Or what? If you're for sale, you'll get bought. And if you really, really, really are convinced that if you're a conservative Republican somewhere that the chamber is going to go off and fund an AOC to run against you in a red district, that's just dumb. Those people just aren't smart if they believe that. So, you know, there's a lot to the the idea that the culture of Washington is very much about a legislative transaction machine. That everybody understands how it works and everybody regrets how ugly it is and they do it anyway. Well, right now, what they're doing is different. This isn't saying vote for my tax cut. This isn't saying, hey, come on and uh, do me a big favor and vote for my bill on auto emissions regulations. Those things are all relevant to whatever. What they're asking now is give money to candidates who supported overthrowing the government of the United States. Give money to guys like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, Kevin McCarthy and Paul Gosar, and all these other people. That's what they're asking now. It is not about a policy issue or a regulatory issue now. Now it is about do you support the people who sought to overthrow and destroy the United States government, or do you support people who did not? It's a simple question now. And I think it's going to be a very difficult one to answer in many ways, because Washington's culture is very ingrained. It's one of the things the Lincoln Project has learned is that Washington, D.C., Democrat and Republican, left and right, is a hermetically sealed bubble. And they love being in that bubble because nothing about Washington needs to be inexplicable to them. They know it's all transactional. And so they're just playing at the edges. We don't play at the edges. We play for the center.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right, Rick. And as we've talked about, both on the air and off the air, that if there's one thing an establishment wants or that hermetically sealed bubble wants, it's for things to remain as they are or to appear to remain as they are. And I think that's right. And when you talk about the fact that McCarthy might go into the chamber and say, you have to give my guys money because if you don't, they could lose. And what you're going to get is worse than us. And too many people in Washington are still seeing the worse than us as they see it in a policy context, not in a democratic context, which is these folks get enough power, they're going to do whatever it is they want to you. And until you break the cycle of that sort of one hand feeds the other kind of idea, then it just gets worse and worse. And I will say this as someone who grew up in Washington, D.C. and worked there afterwards, is you will never find a more concentrated group of people who have less to do with anything about how the world actually works, who believe that each one of them is indispensable to the United States operating on any given day.
2: For sure.
0: Well, Fred, before we go, where can we find you online? I live on Twitter, so my
2: handle is at F.P. Wellman. And Rick, where can we find you? I am at the Rick Wilson on the Twitter machine, folks. That's where you'll generally find me. I'm Reed Galen. You can find me
0: on Twitter at Reed Galen. But with that, gents, thanks for joining me today. Really enjoyed the conversation. And to everyone out there, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.